Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Buckle up as we dive deep into why we make financial decisions with behavioral scientist, Dr. Kyle Murray. Welcome back to the most hated F word podcast. Today, I'm pleased to have on the podcast, Dr. Kyle Murray. Dr. Kyle Murray is the vice dean and professor of marketing at the Alberta School of Business. He was previously the director of the School of Retailing at the University of Alberta from 20, or 2008 to 2017. He began his career as an assistant professor at Richard Ivey School of Business and has been a visiting professor in France, Melbourne, and Dublin. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and a PhD in Marketing and Psychology from the University of Alberta. His research examines human judgment and decision-making using the tools of experimental psychology and behavioral economics to better understand the choices that people make. He's currently working on a complex behavioral change challenge in business and society, including the Canada-wide Bio, Bioorg project? Bioorg project? It actually stands for, yeah, it's short for Behavioral Insights and in Organizations. Okay. Dr. Kyle's research has applications in consumer marketing, customer loyalty, e-commerce, and pricing. He's consulted in areas for clients, including the Competition Bureau of Canada, Consumers Council of Canada, General Motors, Industry Canada, Johnson & Johnson, Ledger, the Research Intelligent Group, the Loyalty One, and Microsoft. As the Vice Dean, he's responsible for providing and overseeing the day-to-day functionings of the school, including more than 500 full and part-time employees. So, Dr. Kyle Murray, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. We were fortunate, fortunate enough to have you come out to our personal finance conference last year, and we got a lot of good responses and feedback on your uh, topic, as I think anytime we start, start speaking of this I don't know. You would know how heavy our brain is, three pounds, six pounds. I can't remember. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. That's a, that's a <laughs> fact lost in my mind as well. But just how powerful this small little muscle actually is for our overall well-being. So with this conversation, from, from my reading about your work, you work for a lot of organizations, governments, and nonprofits to help them better understand their consumers. But hopefully we can kind of flip the switch and give it from the perspective of a consumer in terms of maybe sharing your experience and research on the intersection between experimental psychology and behavioral economics and helping us understand why we make some irrational or rational decisions when it comes to money. Sure, yeah. So my first question is, in your presentation, you had talked about three out of five people aren't able to answer financial literacy questions correctly. And the next point in your presentation was, education on loan is unlikely to solve this problem. Maybe can you touch on what you meant by that and how that applies to the work that you do? Well, I think that's true, not just with financial literacy, but, but almost any problem. Often our first reaction is, well, if people just better understood the situation, if we just better educated people, they would come to the same conclusions that I come to. 
Mm-hmm. Um, right. I mean, that's basically the underlying idea is if we, if people were better educated, they would make more say, rational in quotation marks kind of decisions. And the reality is that education rarely works the way we expect it to because a lot of our decisions are not made through deliberate kind of uh, consideration of all of the available information to make um, some kind of uh, well thought out choice. Instead, and I think most people find that if they just kind of take a quick look at their own decision making, instead, the way that we make decisions is we kind of go with a very rapid choice and usually is based on uh, kind of a feeling. Now, that might vary a little. You know, we might buy a house or a car or um, something else sometimes, and maybe we're really into houses or cars. We spend a lot of time thinking about it. But for the vast majority of decisions we make, we don't think a lot about them. And so education doesn't help a lot, giving you more facts and more information if you don't spend a lot of time trying to think about those facts and that information. Yeah. And this is something that I've been hearing more and more and I guess trying to dissect and understand it. So if we're constantly being bombarded with new information, new podcasts, new books, new facts and figures, could it possibly be doing more harm to us? In, I guess, I guess back up. So like, if that facts and figures and new information is not the answer to, say, financial literacy or any change, what do you feel is the answer? Or what do you think is the best way to go about that? Well, it's, yeah, that's a hard question. So it's, <laughs> how do we solve financial literacy or, or really any of the other problems that, that we kind of think are or could be helped by education? So I'm not sure I have a, a, an easy answer for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more it's not that we should stop doing education or that education is harmful. I don't think that's the case. I just think a lot of the time we are, uh, as consumers, subject to some strong biases that push us away from kind of a a deliberate choice based on processing the information that's available to us. You know, I I think instead we make, we tend to make very quick choices based on what feels right. Mm -hmm. I've been trying to explore more about how to feel emotions or feelings. I thought I knew how to do that, but I, I don't I don't know if I actually did. And I've seen some errors in my own decisions on many things on what I felt, what I thought I felt was right, but it was just maybe one of these cognitive biases that I might have had, or maybe it was lack of information. I'm not sure. But maybe can you talk about these this idea of strong biases, like you said, and like what are these biases that we have in making decisions and where do they come from? So, so this sort of goes way, way back in the history of psychology and really was made famous today by Kahneman and Tversky, their work in the 1970s that has continued on. There's a lot of biases that we suffer from and we could talk about a few, but I think in, in this context, maybe in, in a lot of the things that we see today is, as we talk about the need for greater education is the real power of what's often called the confirmation bias. And that's the bias to look for information that confirms what we already believe. Mm-hmm. Right? So if I believe the world is flat, I can find some information and some people will support my perspective that the world is flat. Mm-hmm. The better way to kind of approach understanding the world, though, is to use the scientific method. That is, have a hypothesis and then see if you can find any evidence that disputes or fails to support that hypothesis, right? Like test that hypothesis. Uh, And so if you believe that the world is flat, can you find any evidence that disputes that notion? Mm -hmm. So so the the approach is rather than, 
And this is, I think, part of the problem that we get into with education is we go into education looking for, or we go into processing information, even if it's not education in any kind of formal sense, looking for evidence that we're right. And what we should be doing is looking for evidence that we're wrong. And if we can't find evidence that we're wrong, then we can be a little bit more confident in our beliefs. So just taking this confirmation bias, if we're always looking for evidence to confirm whatever our bias is, is that natural? Like, is that happening without us thinking about it? And if so, how do we actually shut that off if it's a naturally occurring part of our brain? Mm, it's not easy to turn off, but, but it is easy to, in the sense, uh, you can start to try and th- just do what I said and think like a, more like a scientist would approach a question and mm-hmm. look for evidence that you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason we don't do that is at a really basic motivational level, humans either pursue pleasure or avoid pain. Mm-hmm. Right. And if I tell you, Sean, you're really wrong, that doesn't feel good. If I tell you, Sean, you're, you're right, and you had it exactly <laughs> yeah. right, you understood it all, you, you, you're right on top of this thing, that feels better. Yeah. And so we try to avoid the thing that makes us feel bad, it makes mm-hmm. us feel like we're idiots, it makes us feel like um, we should be embarrassed about what we used to think. So, I mean, you can apply this to a broad, broad range of things we see going on today in society, but applying it to financial literacy is, you know, if you believe the best investment is real estate, then your natural inclination is going to look for evidence to Mm -hmm. confirm that. If you believe the best investment is, you know, a safe guaranteed, guaranteed investment certificate with a bank, then you look for evidence to confirm that. And what you should do is look for evidence that that's not true. Mm Mm-hmm. With just how emotional, like whether it's fitness, like eating healthy or money, I just can assume getting to that spot of like trying to think like the scientist to be like, okay, I'm going to step back and not let my uh, the monkey or lizard brain make this decision for me. I think that could be challenging, but I guess it's probably like with any other muscle, the more reps, the more times you try this, you can get more comfortable with it. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely, I, I think our brains are what psychologists or neuroscientists would often call very plastic. They're very adaptable. We can, we can change the way we think, but it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Right? With, we're very habitual. We're very likely to keep doing what we've done in the past unless we're given a very good reason or strong motivation to change. Mm-hmm. From like a psychology perspective in terms of from what I've learned is our past experiences, what we've been through just shapes our reality, basically. And if you want to dive into that to figure out what's going on subconsciously, there's, I guess, interventions, things that you can do to figure out why we feel this way around certain circumstances. Like, say, for example, let's use a house, like someone wants a really nice house. And what's the bias? Is that a relatively bias where you want to buy a house next to your neighbor and be nice? Would that be... A biasy bios next year. So you're saying like like sort of um, a bias where based on comparing to your neighbor, Compares, comparing yeah. to other people. Yeah, yeah. So say I have that, and I I I, I feel like rationally the right thing to do is buy this house, and maybe underneath everything going on, there could be some issues when kids people were growing up that they didn't have. Uh, money or money was flaunted one or the other. There wasn't enough sure. or there's too much money. So I guess what I'm saying is when you peel back the layer of the onion to unravel why we're seeking this confirmation bias, is it possible to change it that way? And if so, 
is it difficult to get there to like open up and allow yourself to be like, okay, maybe I should start looking for why I'm looking for this. Why am I seeking this confirmation bias? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's lots in that question. So, so going back to, as you said, a lot of who we are is a function of experience, mm-hmm. probably more of who we are is a function of genetics. Mm. So there's certain things that, that we're going to respond to based on that combination of genetics and experience maybe differently than other people would. And, and sure, that could have to do with how you grew up, how much money you had. It could also have to do with what you're exposed to uh, today. It's sort of like a, and I think this goes back to what you're saying, the bias, like a peer group kind of comparison effect where you look around and you say, look, everybody I know has X and I don't have X, mm-hmm. right? Or, or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's like, I have X and, and everyone I know doesn't. Right? And mm-hmm. like, why, why would that even matter? I, I think it comes back to, you know, if you kind of say, and you use an example again, if I say, Sean, like, you're just obviously underperforming compared to your peers, right? Mm. Like, yeah, why don't you have a nicer house and a nicer mm-hmm. car and a nicer mm-hmm. life? That doesn't feel good. No. And, and if you say to somebody, hey, well, you're, you're, you're kicking ass. Like, yeah. you're, uh, you're really getting it done. What are you doing to be so successful? You have such a nice house, such a nice car, you know, such a nice life. That feels better. And I think, you know, what you're getting at, and I think a lot of people have said is, we probably put a, too much emphasis in today's society on, um, exactly that kind of comparisons to our peer group mm-hmm. uh, where really, I mean, if, if you are, you or me, we're, we're born white guys in Canada or living in Canada, at least. And we're already in the tiny, tiny fraction of, of people who are incredibly lucky on this planet, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. regardless of all the other things, mm-hmm. regardless of who we compare to. So, yeah, I, I mean, that's, it's a very complex question, but I think the simple answer if there is a simple answer, but this, the simple answer would be that, you know, we tend to do things that make us feel good mm-hmm. and a feeling like we're underperforming compared to our peers doesn't feel good. And so we might stretch financially, buy a house that's a little more expensive than we can afford, a little more car than we can afford. So we feel better, at least in the short term. And we have this real short term versus long term trade off, but a lot more emphasis on today. I was just going to say about, and it's interesting that we do that, but yet in the long run, it doesn't, it could impact us more. And is there a, like a, a biased or an empathy gap where we can't really identify like ourselves in 20 years that enables us to make those short term decisions? Yeah. Humans, there, there's quite a bit of evidence that humans do something called hyperbolic discounting of the future. That is, we discount the future very, very heavily. So something we can get today is worth much, much more than something we can get in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you talk 20 years out, it probably has to be 10 or 30 or 50 times more for it to be attractive to us over trading it off over something we can have right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, it, humans, humans are major discounters of, of the future. We, we put a lot of emphasis on right now. And, and you can think of that in a variety of ways. I mean, that's sort of a fundamental principle that's discounting the future. A lot of it comes down to kind of the need for immediate gratification. Mm-hmm. And you've probably seen or heard some of the research around the idea that the ability to delay gratification is one of the best predictors of success in kind of a modern capitalist society. Mm-hmm. Because of the way, as you know, money works and it grows exponentially. Mm-hmm. It's worth, you know, $100 today, well invested, uh, is going to be worth a lot more in the future. 
Mm-hmm. And so if we can wait, we'll have a lot more, but it's just mm-hmm. hard to wait. Most people yeah. find it very difficult to wait. And so, so what's going on with our brains when we make those decisions, like when we don't want to wait? I know at the conference you talked about system one and system two. Can you maybe explain those two, like what's actually happening in those two parts of the systems in our brains? Sure. Yeah, I mean, to answer your question, why do we engage in hyperbolic discounting? That Nobody really knows. But in, in the other part of your question about system one versus system two, a quick way of thinking about it is system one is it's the system that... Um, is great if you're dealing with a short-term threat, you know, like a tiger jumping out in your path, I think is an example I used at the conference. Mm-hmm. If you have to think about and, and sort of slowly process the size of the tiger and the size of its teeth and how you can escape, maybe it's better to run, maybe it's better to wrestle with the tiger, you know, you're going to end up dead. Mm-hmm. Right? So system one is, has been a very powerful system for us historically because it gets us away from the tiger right away. Instead of sitting around thinking about you know, all the things you could think about in a tiger waiting for it to kill you. Yeah. In the modern world, we often aren't attacked by tigers, right? More often now we have to deal with problems that happen over a long period of time and they do require a lot more thinking, Um, but that's not the system that we evolved for. So yeah, system one is kind of the fast system. It's more heuristic, tends to be a little bit more emotional. System two is more deliberate. It's a little bit more long-term thinking and a little less emotional. Okay. And just for people who are listening, if they aren't familiar with heuristics, could you just define what a heuristic is? Yeah. So there's a few ways to approach this, but basically heuristic is a shortcut. It's it's getting to an answer quickly. Interpersonal example is, should I like you or not? Well, are you like me? If you're like me, I should like you. Mm -hmm. If If you're not like me, I should dislike you. And that's just happening in our brain quickly. Yeah. That's just one example of like a really quick shortcut to a decision where I want to know right away, and often we do make decisions within a few seconds of whether or not, at least initially, we like someone. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is, has to do with, are you like me? Or are you like other people that I like? Mm-hmm. Right? That's a good shortcut. And that is going to work a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But it's also going to fail dramatically and you know, horribly some of the time. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's what heuristics are good at. Like most of the time, they're going to work. They're going to be a shortcut to a good answer. And sometimes they're going to be, um, uh, lead you really far astray. Whereas the, the kind of uh, opposite of a heuristic would be a, an algorithm or an algorithmic process for making a decision, which is you consider a whole bunch of information, kind of integrate all that information, and then come to a holistic decision about what I should do or what I should think. Mm-hmm. But that's going to take you a long time. Mm-hmm. And if it, at a cocktail party, every time you, you know, were introduced to somebody, you had to go through all of that. Uh, <laughs> It wouldn't matter what you thought of them because everybody would find you really strange. (laughs) So in regards to personal finance and making money decisions, what's happening in our brains? Let's say, how how can we relate system one and system two to personal finance? So let's go back to buying a house. What's happening in our brain between the two systems? Yeah, so, so one of the really important things to understand about these two systems is we're almost always in system one. Okay. So almost all the decisions we make are kind of fast, heuristic, uh, and a little bit more emotional. So any decision you ask about, my answer is kind of like, well, probably you're going to make a system one decision. Mm-hmm. So for a house, you might just use a couple of like key features as, um, as the heuristic. Is it in the right neighborhood? Does it have the right number of bedrooms? Is it in my price range? Mm-hmm. Then kind of that fits into that uh, category of, or, or set of, of houses I might consider buying as opposed to a more algorithmic decision would be to put your preferences into 
an equation and then use some kind of, you know, today you could run some kind of bot through like an MLS site and scrape all of the houses that fit those parameters that you've given to the algorithm and then make a decision based on that. Mm -hmm. The two might come out similar because your algorithm is going to include some of the same decisions points around bedrooms and price, but one's going to just happen very quickly and fairly emotionally. It could Mm -hmm. be the color of the house. It could be how well, how clean it is, how well it's been taken care of. And the other is going to be a bit more deliberate and slow. So I'd like to get your perspective on this. I've heard before that cognitive biases can explain why we make irrational decisions, but I heard someone else say there's no irrational decision. It's perfectly rational based on your previous experience. Right. right. Well, one of the things you find when you start talking about rational is, I I try not to use that word because um, you can define almost anything as rational, right? Mm -hmm. Given, given the right kind of context and, yeah, so, so there, there are people who use the word rational both to explain behavior and then use that same behavior to explain that it was rational. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, rational is a, is a tough term. I don't know if it, what exactly it means because there are so many factors that go into a decision and some of those are emotional that, yeah, rational is, is, is tough. So I'd kind of lean towards a, the second part of that, which is, most of the time, what we do is rational from some perspective, mm-hmm. at least the perspective that you'd call it adaptive. Mm-hmm. So that goes back to the tagger. I'm making really quick decisions is very adaptive. So it's rational. Right. You know, it, it's rational to make a quick decision because it might save your life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But if, if what, you, what you mean is kind of a maximizing decision, that given your preference, what is the very, very best decision you could have made? Mm-hmm. That's different. And that often requires a much more system to deliberate process. Mm, and the heuristic okay. leads you more towards what you're going to call like a satisfying decision. Right. It's good enough. And, and can they influence system two? Like, so like, I'm just thinking back to confirmation bias. If my emotional response is like, I like this thing, as I'm now diving deeper and I'm trying to pull out that Excel sheet to do the mortgage calculation, can is system one operating like kind of, still influencing system two? It may. And there's individual differences. There's some people that like to be in system two a lot of the time, thinking very deliberately, and other people are in system one uh, a lot of the time and make almost every decision emotionally. The other thing you want to kind of keep in mind when we talk about these things is the the system are are really, at best, analogies or or metaphors. We don't actually have two systems. We have one brain. Mm -hmm. It's not like we have two brains and one does one thing and one does another thing. Mm -hmm. So these are ways of describing different ways of processing information. You, you can't ever make a decision completely em- without emotion. And in fact, studies that have looked at that, w- when you try and make a decision without any emotion, it, it becomes almost impossible. Mm-hmm. You just go round and round and round. There's no stopping rule. There's no, let's make a choice. You can just constantly re- rethink what the next move will be. So emotions play an important role. I don't want you know, to be like emotions are bad and short-term thinking Mm -hmm. is bad or really they kind of work together. So, but can biases affect kind of that more deliberate system to processing? Yeah. And confirmation bias is a good example. I can decide that I, that I want to find evidence that the earth is flat. I can go into a system to deliberate approach to collecting that evidence, putting that evidence together and making an argument based on that evidence. Mm-hmm. But it started from like a biased perspective. Right. Yeah. I, I feel like my 
confirmation bias is kicking in as I'm trying to make my emotional reaction that personal finance is all related to emotions. But as you're saying this, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> emotions are the driver. And I think it was, was it in Kahneman's work that they said they found 90% of financial decisions are influenced by emotions? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. Again, you can't really separate the two in the yeah. sense. So at best, what you have is sort of a neutral emotional state or maybe a state where you're not super energized or you're at a neutral kind of level. And what you're really saying is you didn't have kind of a spike in emotional behavior. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think, again, our, our brain, we just have one brain and, and there's, there's both kind of the frontal lobe deliberate thought going on. And there's also the back of the brain, more intuitive, instinctive response. And they're working together almost all the time. You never really can shut one off without maybe some drugs or, mm-hmm. um, you know, some very site specific brain damage of some sort. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's for the most part, the two of them work together. So it's more a question of how emotional, not mm-hmm. our emotions involved. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, I guess if they're always operating, then emotions could actually be a hundred percent part of financial decisions. It's just how much are they actually impacting it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we're emotional beings. They're, they're always playing a role. We always have some kind of um, activity in our brain that you'd kind of consider on the emotional side. But sometimes things are just like at a low level. I, maybe another way of putting this, there's no, there's no state that we're in that's not emotional. Mm-hmm. But there are states that are kind of mildly pleasant and very low in excitement. We wouldn't describe that as like, I'm feeling emotional right now. Right. Okay. As opposed to like really excited and, and really negative or really positive. Mm-hmm. Those we'd usually describe as being emotional. And like, say we recognize that, okay, well, I'm quite emotional. Like I'm so excited about this financial purchase. I've read, and I don't know where I read this from. So I don't know the, like how concrete the evidence is, but just to take a break, like, like wait sure. a day or two. And if those, if that excitement's gone, then maybe I was just listening to that monkey brain a little too much. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So I'll introduce a term that's kind of unfortunate, but it's a term that psychologists use. And it really describes kind of the, the excitement level uh, okay, or the yeah. level of energy that you're working with. Psychologists call that arousal. So mm-hmm. like the, the level of arousal that you're feeling. And so the reason I say it's kind of unfortunate is because in, in like day-to-day conversation, it's much more likely to be connected to sexual arousal. Yes. Uh, and yes. that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm just talking about like um, being energized, higher levels right. of, of, of energy. And yeah, if you get to a really high level of energy, like, and, and we can probably mostly relate to this, think about playing sports or, mm-hmm. you know, doing something that's super, super exciting. You probably do feel like your brain has shut off a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, you, you know, if you're trying to hit a baseball, you're going to be doing that not by thinking through the whole trajectory of the ball to the bat, but by kind of acting instinctively, mm-hmm. right? If you're going to get hit in a hockey game, you're going to act more ex- instinctively and you're going to have that level of arousal kind of pop up. And so when you get to a high level of arousal or something financial, say like buying a new house you really want, or just, you know, this beautiful cottage or car or whatever it might be painting that you really want, taking a break probably does make sense because it's really hard to stay in that highly activated state for very long. Mm-hmm. Right? So we just would get tired because literally we're burning energy in that state. And, and most of us can't stay there for, like you said, a day or two. So after a day or two, it starts to fade. 
and you're going to be in a state where um, it's going to be easier to think more deliberately about something. So yeah, I think your quick answer to your question is if you feel yourself in a really energized or high arousal state, that's usually not optimal for making decisions that aren't like how to hit a baseball or avoid a check in hockey or mm-hmm. you know, something along those lines. Run, run from a fire, right? right. Like that's, yeah. that's what those emotions yeah. are for. You don't want to stop and think, should I run? Can I outrun this thing? Yeah, you, you, want, you want your body to kick in. You want some adrenaline to dump and you want to be able to get out of there. And, and, and you don't want to be thinking too much about it. Right? Mm-hmm. How hot is the fire? What's the best way? You, just, you want to get out of the building. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're adapted to that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not the best for making a financial decision. I've personally liked just that idea of labeling system one and system two, even though, like you said, there's like one brain, but just more of a, an awareness piece. So uh, I can think of a time that I was quite aroused in Mexico, and it sounds funny saying that, but uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, there, my wife and I were staying at a condo and an Airbnb, and the one next to it was for sale. And I was messaging with the guy in the Airbnb and he was just a nice guy. I was asking him how long he owned it. Anyways, he started telling me how much he paid and I started running numbers. I'm like, holy smokes, we can have a secondary home in Mexico. It's a direct flight to Puerto Vallarta. I can, we can make this much money every month. And we were like ready to just come home and sort this out and buy it. It was very, very inexpensive. And everything rationally to what I thought at that moment, like made sense. Like, oh, we'll deal with a foreign tax filings, foreign property ownership. And it was so strange where I feel like I'm a cautious financial decision maker where I was just ready to, yep, let's do this. But got home after about a week of telling everybody about it. I'm like, that would have been a bad decision. (laughs) (laughs) So, but towards the end of it, I'm like, okay, because I remember from your presentation and I've uh, read his book, Think Fast or Think Slow, Think Fast. Thinking fast and slow, think, something yeah, like that. It, yeah. And I remember actually trying to think, okay, you're operating out of system one, you're operating out of the emotional side. And it kind of helped a little bit, but as the days wore on, I think it's just helpful for me to label, just be like, this is what you're doing. I don't know if that makes sense from a, a research perspective, just the yeah. idea to be like, this is what I'm doing. I should be doing this. It's okay. Cause I'm thinking this way. Sure. Yeah. I think, I think that's true. I think it's not a complete defense because you know, again, your body's adapted and evolved for a long period of time to make sure you run from that fire, mm-hmm. right? It, it's not a system that you're supposed to be able to easily interrupt mm-hmm. and say, nope, I'm going to stand in the fire. Yeah. Right? And, and it's the same kind of thing. Like you're excited about this new opportunity. Those systems make it hard for you to be rational. But I think you're right, kind of recognizing that, hey, maybe I'm not in the best place to make a, a, a decision. You know, and, and that's one example when you're excited. You can also um, run across similar examples when people are dealing with estates. You know, someone has died, and you're mm-hmm. in this sort of again excited or high arousal, but really negative kind of mm-hmm. mood. Or some cases, it's like low arousal and negative, like a depressive mood. Mm-hmm. Any of those sort of extreme emotional states are not great for making decisions. In mm-hmm. I get like to be more level, mm-hmm. um, and and yeah, I mean, it's not a it's not a guarantee you're going to make a great decision, but if you can remind yourself. I might not be in the right place right now to make a decision. That That's probably going to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Now, on the flip side, you might miss some really great opportunities. Mm-hmm. Somebody else could have bought that condo. It could have been a good decision, right? Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to take with a grain of salt that if, if you wait and it is something that's going to expire, you might miss it. But usually, you know, if you're a financial advisor, it's, it's better to miss than it is to, to, to hit a loser. So this brings me, makes me think of... Uh... 
I believe it's another cognitive bias, but the loss aversion. Yeah. Maybe can you touch on like what is our brain doing during like that this idea of a loss aversion? Yeah. So what what we know, I mean, there's this is a, a huge literature, and people are still trying to understand exactly what happened. But what we know is we're kind of generally risk averse. Right? So mm-hmm. so losing hurts more than winning, generally. Mm-hmm. Right? So losing ten dollars hurts more than winning ten dollars feels good, mm-hmm. and that's not true of everybody. So there's there's people that definitely are more risk seeking. Mm-hmm. And we individually can be more risk-seeking at certain times or in context. But as a general rule, humans are risk-averse. Right. And of course, that makes sense because there's some risks that if you're wrong once, it's the end of you. And so mm-hmm. you should be risk-averse. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you, you, should be, you should avoid uh, especially large risks because they can be so devastating. Mm-hmm. And we're mortal, so you don't get a second chance on those right, things. Yeah. yeah, and we've always, from the financial planning side, we've always seen it from people react worse to losing money than gaining money. And I was talking to my wife about this. And I was also like, I share other stats like uh, in Canada, they, every year they come out with um, the level of basically how in debt Canadians are. And every year it increases. And and she asked me a question, which I, I really didn't know the answer. She's like, so if we're naturally have this loss aversion where we don't want to lose money, why are, why are everyone spending all their money? year after year, like, like losing their money. Right. right. <laughs> so do, I don't know if you have any thoughts about from how the brain's yeah. working in that context. The answer to that is framing. Okay. In short. So, and this is one of the early studies in framing, and I think it still kind of works. But if I tell you this meat is twenty or 75% lean, that kind of sounds good. If, mm-hmm. if I tell you it's 25% fat, it sounds bad. Mm. Right. And so it's, it's how you frame it. A, a loss in, say, the stock market, feels like a loss, even if it's a loss on paper and bounces back quickly, feels like a loss and hurts, right? Spending money on a new car feels like a gain. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right? I got a new car. I took yeah. my money. I can't do anything with money yeah, except yeah, yeah. buy things. Yeah. But now I have a car or I have a house or I have yeah. a vacation or whatever it might be. So, so it's a framing thing where uh, a loss in the stock market is the 25% fat and uh you know, buying a, something you like or want is the 75% lead. Ah. They're just different sides of the same right, kind of right, right. coin. But if you don't frame it as a loss, it's not a loss. It's actually one of the tricks to being a better investor, right? Is just because the market's down, don't frame that as a loss. Mm-hmm. If, you frame, if, you, if you think about that as kind of like a, a short-term fluctuation or the normal kind of variability in the market, mm-hmm. as professional investors tend to do, Mm-hmm. you're a lot less likely to panic. Mm-hmm. But if you feel like, wow, I mean, we just saw this in recent months around the pandemic and you know, markets dropped 35% mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of people sell, mm-hmm. right? It's partly because they feel like they just lost a third of their retirement savings and they can't lose anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? So they get out. If you think about it, if you can think about it as a loss on paper and believe that it's going to come back as historically it always has, that framing might help you make a better decision. Of course, mm-hmm. in the market, there's complexity, right? When it was down 35%, you weren't sure it wasn't going to be down 75%. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're always kind of also making some kind of probability forecast as well, which is, those are difficult decisions for people to make. And then would that be a confirmation bias if you start thinking like, wait, there's never been a, pan-, you know how people look at historical data, like it, it always gets better, but you're like, wait, there's never been a pandemic before. This is different. 
Yeah. So there's, you could confirm it either way, right? So if you believe it's going to bounce back, you could go back through history and look at all of you know market corrections and say, oh, look, it always has come back. You could also, if you don't think it's going to come back, look for all those pieces of evidence, all the people in the media that are saying it's not going to come back. And I think mm. one of the really interesting things about the stock market in particular makes it so hard to predict is at any one time, you can find people who will go either way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Experts even, not just regular people, but yeah. there'll be experts who are going to say, no, there's lots of room to run. It can still go up. And there's people like, no, we've, we've reached too high a point. It's got to come down. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, very few people are right in the timing mm. uh, on a consistent basis. I feel like there's more articles and research that support that most professional managers are wrong versus, versus right. But yeah, that's true. That's true. It, it's, it's fascinating, but yet there's probably, I don't even know how many people employed to try to guess and predict the market, but yeah, it's a huge high paying industry. The other thing from a consumer's perspective, and I'd like to look at you from a consumer's perspective, but also how you consult different businesses on how consumers react is on the pain of pain. I've read a bit about the pain of pain and what that means. So maybe can you just touch on what that is and how businesses or companies might utilize the pain of pain for us to make decisions? Well, you might even know more about this than me, so I only have a passing understanding of it. But my understanding is it really is just an extension of what we were just talking about, which is we're risk averse and, and things that are painful are, are painful. Right. right. Losses hurt more than gains. Yeah. And, and yeah, so I, that's, that's sort of my high level understanding of it. You, you might have a better. I was reading this one book and talked about how companies will use that to their advantage. And it just gave me like an aha moment where subscription base, where they try to separate like the decision to purchase it from pain. And so like oh, you see. see online all the time where you 30 day trial. So did you say the pain of paying? Like as in the pain of putting money out for something? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you meant the pain of pain itself. Oh. Like kind of the fear of pain. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, which is also a thing, right? Like we also yeah. have like a, like that's a loss of thing. Like things hurt more oh. than they feel good. So we actually fear pain more than we should probably fear pain. Right. Uh, but oh, there's, okay. you're right. There's also on a consumer side, a fear of, uh, or there's pain and paying for things. Yeah. Um, not for everybody, but for some people. And yeah, I, I think especially in the digital age, we've gone a long way to try to decouple when you pay for something mm-hmm. and um, when you get to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and if you can do that, yeah, it, it reduces sort of the psychological cost, even though it doesn't reduce the actual cost. So subscriptions are one example. I mean, that goes back to magazines. They would, uh, in the early days, you, you get a subscription for a year. And they give you some kind of gift like a clock radio that's worth more than the year subscription. So it just eliminates the pain of paying for that subscription because mm-hmm. you got a gift that was worth more. Mm-hmm. Of course, what the subscription companies, magazine companies knew was you probably weren't going to cancel it. And five mm-hmm. years from now, mm-hmm. you would have paid a lot for that clock radio. Mm-hmm. And I think could that, that could be applied to so many. I think from a personal finance perspective, that's really changed my thinking of even like monthly payments. I did a cell phone calculation on if you pay per month versus if you just buy the thing. It was substantially more expensive to pay it over the two years. But the one that I'm curious your thoughts on is my wife and I, for the second time, we stayed in an all-inclusive resort. And I'm quite like 
making sure it was a good value. The first time I drove myself crazy, like documenting whether it was <laughs> eat enough like, and drink enough to yeah. make sure you get your money back. And yeah. yeah. And the second time I was like, this is all free because we paid for it for like months beforehand. Is that the, is that a behavioral bias going on? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the classic example of, of discoupling payment from getting whatever the product is, vacation, other things is, is really the advent of credit. Right? Mm-hmm. As soon as you had a credit card, I can buy something today. I don't have to take any money out of my account or from under my mattress to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Right? Or, you know, the ex- more extreme version is buy now, don't pay for 12 months or 18 months. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and the only reason that works for a company is because they know the vast majority of people won't be able to pay for it in 12 or 18 months and are going to have to borrow the money at a really, really high interest rate. Right? Otherwise, it makes no sense to sell something today for nothing. And get paid mm-hmm. 18 months later. So if you're an entirely cash society, every time you buy something, you have to give somebody something. Mm-hmm. The pain of paying is going to be higher. Mm-hmm. The more you can decouple it, the more you can push it into that future that we discounted a hyperbolic rate, mm-hmm. um, the better off we, yeah. you are as a retailer, right, in reducing the pain. And actually, as a consumer, you feel less pain now. You're going to feel future in, pain in the future that's going to be greater. Yeah, that's so strange that that's what our brains can do to us. It's like, I want to feel better now and I don't care about my future self. Is there a way to like bridge that? I forget the exact term, but like that. Yeah, that gap. It's very difficult. So it turns out it's very, very difficult. Some, it, there's a, there are some individual differences, probably genetic differences in how good people are at being patient and waiting and delaying gratification. But yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing to do because um, for the most part, it is better to have it right now, mm. right? So, I mean, if, if, to use that system one, system two thing, system one tells you get it right now. It's going to feel really good. Um, you don't involve system two to figure out, well, how bad is it going to feel in the future? But even if you did try to do that, we're very, very weak or poor at predicting our future emotional state or emotional pain. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's, um, it's one of those things I think that makes – finance so difficult, whether it's on the investing side, right, where you're going to have to put some money in and you're going to have to wait decades to get a good mm-hmm. return. Mm-hmm. Or if it's on the debt side, where you can have something right now, and you don't have to pay for it for years. Mm-hmm. Right? Both those things, putting money in now, giving away money and not getting it back for years is hard to do. And waiting to get something you could have right now because of some future pain is very difficult to do. And that's really at the heart of personal finance, right? How, like, how do you convince people to get around it? It's why advisors are useful because having somebody externally tell you, even if you know this stuff, to tell you that that's not a good idea is really helpful. Yeah. And how much time and effort do businesses spend on taking advantage of these mental biases that like, I'd imagine a lot. Let's flip that. What would you say kind of like with all the things that you know and research from consume or businesses and consumers behave, what would some final comments that you'd have for people who are trying to navigate this wild, emotional, uh, driven world of personal finances, some just things that you would recommend? Yeah, so I can probably answer both those fairly quickly. And okay. the issue of what you can do, I think we already talked about two of the more important kind of things you could implement in your own life to make better decisions. One is to be patient, kind Mm -hmm. of wait. Don't try not to buy things when you're not in an ideal state or you're in a state that's too emotional. Or maybe even it's okay to be emotional, but you want to think about the same problem in different states. Sometimes when you're relaxed, sometimes when you're excited, Mm. 
you know, get at it from a few different angles. Just take time. Don't, don't rush decisions and give yourself more of an opportunity to get into that system two kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. And the other one that's really important, and we're very social animals, is, is talk to other people about it. And mm-hmm. in particular, I mean, not to, to, to give a, a plug to uh, advisors, but it's why there's such a big market in the world for consultants of all type. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a business consultant, it's somebody like me who comes into an organization and talks to the organization about how they can do better. It's not usually because they don't know what they're doing. It's often just because it's helpful to have that outside, more objective system two kind of voice mm-hmm. when it's a really emotional situation for you. Mm-hmm. And in personal finance, the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. My money, my house, my cars, those can be very personal things to me, but they're not so personal to my advisor. I mean, hopefully my advisor cares about those things and cares about me, but they're not as personal. They can give a more objective view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it, it's also why we care so much about regulation and protecting consumers because we do tend to rely pretty heavily on, on those external advisors at times. Mm-hmm. So the two things you can do are take time and mm-hmm. get good advice. Yeah. And take time to think about it, get good advice. That'll help a lot with the decision making. And you know, I like how you said within there, think about it in different emotional states. Because remember, we're never, we're never without emotions. Right. So there's no state where we're like, let's wait until we're not, we don't have emotions and then we'll make a decision. Yeah. So that'll never happen. So it's more like, think about it from different perspectives. Think about it from that excited, like, you know, if I had this house, I'd be happy every day. And also Mm -hmm. from the like more calm, if I have to pay this mortgage, I'm going to be really tight every month. You know, think about it from a few different angles that might help. Okay. As you're saying this, my last question is through some reading around psychology and my background is not psychology, but I've learned that like to bridge that sort of empathy gap, there's some deep imagery and work that could be done. Like picture yourself at this age, try to imagine what your life looks like at this time. Based on your research and like the science behind it, do those interventions, so to speak, create change or can they jog you to think differently? Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you the kind of traditional scientist argument, which is uh, it depends, yeah. but I, I think it can help. Yeah. Like, and I think a lot of us do some of this naturally, but if you think about a future state and, mm-hmm. and look back at it from the future, what that really does is kind of push you into a system two way of thinking. It kind of pushes you into what would naturally be more rational mm-hmm. because you're taking yourself out of your current life and saying, well, 20 years from now, how much is that going to matter? Mm-hmm. What's going to be important? Mm-hmm. What should I do if I want to get to that state in, in 20 years? So that kind of imagining can help. I mean, I think there's pretty good evidence even in the short term for athletes and things that if you visualize certain things occurring, and this is where we can talk a little bit about neuroscience. It it seems like the neural activity in your mind of visualizing something Mm -hmm. is very similar to it actually happening. Mm -hmm. You know, so like visualizing your your shot in basketball Mm -hmm. is going to activate a lot of the same physiology as Mm -hmm. taking the shot, even if you don't. And so it's, it's, it's like a way of training. It is a way of training your brain towards something. But of course, you and I can imagine taking shots all day long. We're not going to get as good as LeBron James. Yeah. He's actually taking shots. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so there's definite limits to what imagining can do. Yeah. But, but it, it, it can certainly help. Mm-hmm. So I guess from a personal finance perspective is say we know like deep inside, we value these things, whatever it is. We can try to imagine ourselves being in high emotionally driven decision situations that we could be like, okay, I'm going to back off or I'm going to wait. I'm going to not try to make that decision just so that when it happens, we're like, oh yeah, I planned for this. This has meant to happen. 
and kind of train our brain in that sense because yeah, we're not LeBron James and we're not going <laughs> to. Right. But, yeah. Right. I, I think you can. I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. One is the common one is, you know, people say things like, you know, on your deathbed, you're not going to wish you'd spent more time at the office. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hope that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I imagine there's some people who get to the end of their lives and think, you know, if I'd worked a little harder, maybe I could have got a little bit more. I could have achieved more. I could have mm-hmm. had a bigger impact on the world. So there's yeah. a balance, right? I mean, yeah. if you take that to the extreme, what does that mean? What would you, at the end of your life, really be happy you had done if it wasn't work, going to work and, you know, be part of kind of the normal hamster wheel of society? Well, if you just spent all day sitting around home doing things that you enjoyed doing, I bet on your deathbed, you wouldn't feel great about that either. You're going to be like, man, I should have worked a little more. (laughs) I could could have done some things. Maybe I would have lived longer. (laughs) Like, who knows? (laughs) So, So I think there's definitely a balance there. Yeah. And the other point I was going to make is, as you're talking about that, I was thinking about, I have a, a daughter who's 16. And so she's, she's going to drive soon. She's been talking about a car that she wants. She visualizes that. She visualizes only the fun. Right. Yeah. Right. Only the way it's going to look. It's going to yeah. be a car that looks cool. Her friends are going to like it. They can have fun together. She's not thinking about, is that a reliable vehicle? Is it a, the kind of things her parents are thinking about? Is it a safe vehicle? <laughs> you know, is it going to be good on gas? Is it going to be affordable? Those kinds of things. She doesn't care about that yeah. because I'm visualizing her being safe. Yeah, right? yeah. And and she's visualizing herself having fun. Mm-hmm. And and so that's leading both of us to kind of very different perspectives on what <laughs> kind of car she should have. Yeah. <laughs> but but you know what she wants is is not that different from what I would have wanted when I was 16. So so it's not uh, that's not at all a, a knock. It's just you know I, what I'm trying to say is you can visualize something that might not be ideal for you. Mm-hmm. How would you say that was a spouse? Because you don't want to discount someone's like visualization. And at some point, spouses have that same issue. I can't, that's more of a therapy question, but <laughs> yeah. like, but more so like, how do you deal with that? Right? Like, how do you deal with it when it's somebody you care about and they want something really different than you? Yeah. But it is a decision you have to make jointly. This yeah. surprisingly is something that hasn't been studied a lot. So we don't do a lot of research on group and joint decision making. Most research in psychology looks at how do people make decisions individually? And that's probably a real gap in, in research because the vast majority of decisions are not made individually. They're made in some kind of social context. And, and social psychology has tried to get at that, and there's a, a push towards more understanding of group and joint decision-making. To a large extent, it comes down to some kind of compromise. Mm-hmm. There's a number of strategies. It can be, okay, you get the fun thing this time mm-hmm. that you want, but next time we're going to get the safe thing I want. Right? Mm-hmm. And for some things like a car, that doesn't work very well. Yeah. <laughs> so, so maybe we'll come to a compromise that you will get something that's close to what you want and, but also reliable. So it's not as reliable as I want, not as fun as you want. I don't know. Does that mean both of us lose? So those are very hard decisions. Joint decision-making is difficult because yeah. if you think about it from kind of like an economic perspective, we have different what economists would call utility maximizing functions, right? Like Mm -hmm. the way we get to what we want is different. We're putting different Mm -hmm. weights on different things. And um, to combine those things means that we have to change how we weight things like reliability versus fun. Mm -hmm. And and that's not easy to do. So, you know, the the simple answer is like in in a marriage, and it's probably why people talk a lot about this, is it's easiest if you you share a lot of the same kind of core values. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? because then a lot of the time you're not compromising. If you always want different things, 
always have to compromise. That's, that's more difficult. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's no easy answer to that. I mean, that's, <laughs> that is why we have, you know, the, probably the kind of conflict and high levels of divorce we have and the whole area of uh, marriage therapy is yeah. take any two individuals and put them together. There's for 25, 30, 40 years, there's going to be times where they have different perspectives. Uh, and throw and I, money and the, kids. Yeah. And this is not just marriage, but the best relationships are ones where there's give and take, where there's mm-hmm. accommodation, mm-hmm. Right? where you, you know how to compromise without upsetting each other. But that's much, much easier to say than it is to do. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I, I'm curious, based on our deci- or, uh, just my this is Zach's question, it's a book recommendation. Okay. But um, based on the conversations we've been having, I'm sure you have tons of good books, but like on decision making, it doesn't have to be around personal finance, just understanding how we make decisions. Do you have any good books that you would recommend? Like one book? Yes, yeah, so we've been talking about Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Dan Ariely has some very good books mm-hmm. as well in this area. More recently, kind of a policy level, like government level decision making. Cass Sunstein has, has written a number of books and his book with Dick Thaler, Nudge, is, is kind of a classic mm-hmm. on the policy side, uh, even though it's, it's a fairly recent book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot out there right now. One of my favorite ones recently is um, Wendy Wood's book, Good Habits, Bad Habits. Okay. I, that, that one is very um, well uh, founded in the current science of, of how we change habits. Okay. But yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a few. And, and one other thing I want to mention, kind of going back to a question you asked earlier, kind of about how companies or organizations would employ mm. or make use of their knowledge of, of how of these decision biases and how we think. Mm-hmm. There, there is a pretty strong kind of built-in counter that we have to that kind of manipulation, which is we don't like it and we react very badly when we catch people doing it. Oh, okay. So generally, the advice that I'd give an organization is, not to try and trick people, like mm. not to try and fool people into doing something. Because unless you're only selling something to them once in their lives, um, they're going to fi- figure it out. And eventually, might, it might be a little while, but mm. they'll, they'll figure it out eventually and, and it'll be very negative. Mm-hmm. And that's become even more true with social media and yeah. the advent of, of a larger voice for individuals. You don't want to run a business trying to trick people. Mm-hmm. It's a question I get a lot as a marketing professor. And I, I think some people even show up to classes sort of hoping you're going to tell them the tricks that they mm-hmm. can use to get people to do things they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that's very, very difficult to do, first of all, because of the confirmation bias. People mm-hmm. will look for reasons to do what they want to do and mm-hmm. ignore things that tell them to do things they don't want to do. But it, it's also just that we feel like we're being manipulated or we find out we're being manipulated. We mm-hmm. react very negatively to mm-hmm. that. And there are examples of companies that have been seriously damaged because they were caught manipulating customers, whether from Wells Fargo to BP to you know, Lulu. I mean, there's a long list. We could spend a whole podcast just talking about that. So really the best way to use this information is to help customers make good decisions. Mm, yeah, okay. If, you're, if what you're doing is, is kind of using behavioral science to trick customers, that might work in the short term. But you better have a quick exit plan for that business mm-hmm. because at some point they'll figure it out uh, and the backlash will be harsh. And you know what? I watched your video, uh, one of them, and you started out saying that, which, I, which was nice to hear because I read a book that I guess this is my confirmation bias that was called Trust Me, I'm Lying 
by Ryan Holiday. And I, I first read his book called The Obstacle is the Way, which was really, I really, really enjoyed it. But then I heard he had controversy over this book called Trust Me, I'm Lying. And he was a VP of marketing for American Apparel. Hmm. And it was an example of a company that was lying to people. Okay, because his whole book, <laughs> I, didn't, I actually didn't know too much about them, but his whole book was around marketing manipulation. And I've never read any sort of book from a company's perspective. And from there, I just thought, wow, is this happening all the time? But it's interesting. So you've heard that they're... Yeah. And I mean, it hurt them, right? I mean, they're, they're not anywhere near the company they were a decade ago. And I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear they're bankrupt sometime soon. In fact, I'm not even entirely sure they haven't been close to or in bankruptcy already. Uh, that's not to say their founder didn't become obscenely wealthy as a result. Yeah, yeah. Right? He did. Yeah. And the company was very successful, but you know, that doesn't that kind of thing doesn't work in the long term. And and a lot of what they were doing was uh yeah, and if you've ever seen their advertising, it, it's really best described as kind of sleazy. Right? And they were taking advantage of some kind of base um instincts that we have. To, to sell things. And, but the same is true of Abercrombie and Fitch, right? Abercrombie and Fitch for a long time, their whole approach was kind of that peer group approach that we talked about. And the CEO would say like, we don't want fat kids wearing our clothes. We only want the all American good looking kids wearing our clothes and we won't sell clothes to fat kids. <laughs> and, and he said it quite a few times. Eventually people started talking about it. And um, that has been pretty much the end of Abercrombie and Fitch. I mean, they've been devastated. There's both their share price and their, uh, sales as a direct result in this case of of that kind of comment. So, yeah, I'm not saying it doesn't it can't work. Like yeah. those are examples of guys who became very wealthy doing it. Yeah, but it doesn't work in the long term. No, yeah. I mean, I'm, it's good that if their intent is that, that their fate is that as well, or the companies don't do so well. Well, thank you so much. Where where can people find more about you? I know your website. Maybe you can share some website. I don't know if you have any specific articles that if people are interested in understanding more, like businesses can uh, understand their customers more. I, I, you have a bunch of different articles. I don't know if you have a couple you can point to. Yeah. And then more recently, I've kind of put up some some videos as well. Uh, so yeah, I think the best place to go is just my website, kylemurray.com. On the retail side, uh, you can find the books that I've written there. In terms of articles... I don't know. It's a bit like asking somebody to talk about their favorite child, but, <laughs> but yeah, I think you kind of just go in chronological order. I think some of my more recent stuff on emotions and emotion regulations and how consumption plays a role in how we manage our emotions uh, are some of my favorite articles. I think one yeah. of my most popular articles uh, has been the one on how weather affects how we buy. I, uh, I read one on the oil prices. And it was because oh, yeah. there was real loud mental accounting, which was interesting. Yeah. So I'll put those two articles in the notes. Okay. Sure. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much. Uh, I really appreciate our conversation. And uh, you'll have to follow us up to let us know who compromised you or your daughter on that car. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody already knows who's going to win that one. <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> wow. What a great interview with Dr. Kyle Murray. Here are my three key takeaways. Number one, think like a scientist. As Dr. Kyle Murray said, this is when we understand that our brains are emotionally driven when we are making decisions. And this often leaves us subjective to confirmation biases where we unconsciously and consciously seek out information that's going to confirm our thought or hypothesis. 
And generally speaking, as humans, we try to avoid the feeling of bad. As a result, we don't try to see if our thoughts or hypothesis could potentially be wrong. Instead, we simply look for things that are going to confirm that, and that's called the confirmation biases. However, as Dr. Kyle Murray says, the better way, aka thinking like a scientist, is when we step step back and try to think outside of the box in terms of thinking, could my thought or hypothesis be wrong? Could it be incorrect? And doing so allows us to make better decisions for the present and long term, avoiding the confirmation bias. Number two, our decisions come from two systems. When we are making decisions, financial ones in this case, we are either operating in system one, which is more emotionally driven and more heuristically driven, which operates from our subconscious level, and system number two, which is more logically driven and operates from our subconscious mind. But we need to be aware that many times when we're making these financial decisions, they're emotionally driven. As a result, they come and operate out of system one, which, as we said, is emotionally driven. Certainly in the past 10,000 years ago, operating in system one on the emotional emotional level was critically important to our survival as we ran from saber-toothed tigers. However, today those threats are far and few between. And as a result, we need to be aware that when we're making quick decisions, they're operating out of system one and in many cases, avoid any sort of logical decision making out of system two. So it's just important that when we're approached with a large financial decision, that we recognize that our decisions are most likely coming from system one, which are emotionally driven. And it's important to recognize that to recognize and ask ourselves, where are these emotions coming from? And making sure that we don't make decisions out of Kyle Murray's um, term, financial arousal. That's when we're excited and we just want to make a decision. Instead, we want to sit back and maybe get to our logical brain in system two to take ourselves out of that financial arousal state. Because system two is less emotional and more logical. And number three is just to simply recognize and understand all the common cognitive biases that impact our financial lives. In this episode, we talked about decoupling. That's when uh, the consumption is separated from the purchase. Another one we talked about was confirmation bias. That's when our brain looks for information that confirms our thoughts. We talked about loss aversion. Loss aversion is when we tend to prefer to avoid losses than experience potential gains. And we also talked about discounting ourselves, meaning we can't seem to picture ourselves or see ourselves in the future. Thus, we tend to make and act in the short term versus long term when we are making financial decisions. Another part to this question, which I thought was really insightful, was when Kyle talked about two things that we can utilize to our advantage when we're faced with these cognitive cognitive biases. The first one is to be patient. Think about your emotions around making a financial decision and then try to get into system two. And I really liked his idea about trying to think of our financial decisions, generally major ones, from different states. So this could be 
an excited state, a calm state, and a more rational state. Doing so gives us more awareness around what should this decision look like. And number two is talk to other people about our decisions. This is, as Kyle says, why consultants are so popular. Not because people don't understand how to make a decision or understand the information. It's because they want someone, we want someone, to get us out of our own thoughts and put us into System 2 and help us go into System 2 and view this decision from a more objective view because we know that when we operate in System 1, it's very emotionally driven. Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week to The Most Hated F-Word. As always, our goal is to focus on our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you've been enjoying this podcast, if you've listened to it and you thought you found some insightful information, please go to iTunes and Spotify and leave a review as it really helps in the rankings so we can continue to bring great guests week after week. Thank you so much and have a great day. Thank you.